If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. As we continue this morning in the book of Genesis, we'll be in Genesis 31. And we're going to be uh, breaking up the reading of the chapter. It's a uh, longer chapter, and so uh, we'll be breaking up the reading. But really, there will only be one point through the sermon this morning, one main point, and that is the Lord takes care of his own. The Lord takes care of his own. So let's look to, to Genesis 31. We'll, we'll start by reading the first 21 verses. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father's he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. And then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. He said, Lift up now your eyes and see all the male goats which are mating are striped and speckled and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now, we had seen in the latter portion of Genesis 30 last week how after Jacob had worked those 14 years for Rachel and Leah that the terms of his employment with Laban had changed and he had become prosperous. 
Chapter 30 ended by saying, So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And so Jacob was, was prospering, and he was prospering because the Lord's hand was upon him for good. The Lord was blessing him. And this blessing, this increase of wealth, was not lost upon the sons of Laban. They see the flocks of Jacob increasing, and they know where this increase is coming from. It is coming from their own father's flock. The sons of Laban are talking, Jacob hears them, and we find in verse 2 that Laban is on the same page as his sons. Whether Laban was taking his cue from them or not, we do not know. But what is clear is that Laban's attitude toward Jacob had changed. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that Laban's relationship with Jacob, or maybe we could say Jacob's relationship with Laban, had been difficult for a long time. This had certainly been the case at least from Jacob's wedding night, if not uh, from when he had first met his uncle. At this point, though, that wedding was 13 years in the past, and as this chapter makes it clear, during, uh, during those years, that working relationship was difficult with Laban changing his wages and so on, but apparently up to this point there had been some level of cordiality and agreeableness that has now dissipated. One translation helpfully rendered verse 2 as saying that Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. A facial expression can say a lot, and some of us probably say more by our faces than, than others. But Jacob sees that he is falling increasingly in the disfavor of his father-in-law, and then on top of that, verse 3, the word of the Lord comes to him saying, Return to the land of your fathers and your relatives, and I will be with you. And so not only are circumstances building up to make Jacob think that it's time to leave, now the Lord explicitly tells him to leave. And so he begins taking steps to do that very thing. And he begins by summoning Rachel and Leah to him out into the field for a bit of a family conference of sorts. Being out in the open field as they were uh, was a way to help ensure their privacy. If you're among the tents, somebody might be listening on the other side of the tent. And so if you're out in the open, you can avoid someone overhearing what was being said. And therefore, Jacob's element of secrecy and surprise in leaving would not be lost. Jacob's words to Leah and Rachel are found there in verses 5 through 13. And essentially, it amounts to this, that Jacob has been faithful in his work for Laban. Laban had cheated him, changed his wages those ten times. But whatever Laban tried to do, whenever Laban tried to swerve for his own advantage, the Lord was still looking out for Jacob and providing for Jacob. And notice, notice in those words of Jacob to his wives, how this theme of the Lord's protection and provision comes out over and over again. You see it in verse 5. But the God of my father was with me. Verse 7, however, God did not allow him to hurt me. You see it in verse 9, thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And then in verses 12 through 13, we have those words of that angel of God, who we later find out is actually God himself, who says, listen, uh, who says to Jacob, he says, lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return 
to the land of your birth. And so there's this, this running theme of the Lord's protection and provision. You see it there in Jacob's words to Rachel and Leah, and indeed we'll see this continuing all throughout the chapter. Now, I realize as we've been considering uh, these narratives concerning Jacob that I'm continually pointing you back to Genesis 28:15, where the Lord promised Jacob and said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And I make no apology for continually pointing back there to Genesis 28:15 and the promise, because what we're seeing here is the continual outworking of that promise in these chapters that follow. And the Lord himself here even pointed back to that incident at Bethel. And so what we learn is that that event at Bethel in Genesis 28 was somewhat of a watershed event in Jacob's life. Jacob had anointed that pillar there and made a vow to the Lord. And of course he had done so because the Lord had appeared to him and had confirmed the Abrahamic promise to him, the promise that he would be with him and would bless him. And so Jacob tells his wives that Laban's disposition had changed over the years. Laban had tried to get the better of him, but God would not allow it. The Lord had watched out for him and blessed him, and now the Lord has commanded him to return to the land of his birth. And the verses 14 through 16 make it clear that Leah and Rachel are on the same page with Jacob on all of these things. They understand that Laban does not value them personally. They expected no inheritance from their father. They acknowledge that they had been sold, as it were, from their father to Jacob. And the labor which Jacob had bestowed so as to gain them had not been returned to them in any way in the form of a dowry, uh, a father sending his wife into marriage with with things or with some wealth. And uh, they say in verse 15 that their father had consumed their purchase price. And so they they see the justice of this situation, that, uh, that Jacob is becoming increasingly wealthy, as it were, at Laban's expense. They see the justice of this. And moreover, if the Lord had commanded Jacob to leave and go back home, they're, they're fine with that. Let's, let's get out of here. That's, that's fine. And verses 17 through 21 make it clear that that is just what happened, that Jacob loads up his family on camels, they hit the road, along with Jacob's livestock and everything else that he had acquired over the years. Now Laban was out shearing his flock, evidently away from home, and that makes a good opportunity for Jacob to get away without being noticed by him immediately. His absence also created this opportunity for Rachel to steal her father's idols, as we see in verse 19. Now, I don't think it's immediately clear what Rachel's intentions were in stealing those idols. Perhaps it was a superstitious fear that Laban might consult these idols and therefore uh, be able to determine where Jacob was and therefore how to catch up with them. It could have been an idolatrous desire to worship them herself. Maybe it was a covetous desire just to obtain the precious metal of which they were made. Should they have been made of silver or gold or something like that? Maybe it was a righteous concern to persuade her father to give up his idolatrous ways. It's hard to say. At any rate, she stole them. Now, we can be clear, Laban should not have had these idols, but I think we can be equally clear, Rachel should not have stolen them, even if she had righteous concern and wanted to stop her father's idolatries, these things were not hers. She should not have taken them. 
And while Rachel stole Laban's goods, Jacob stole Laban's hearts, according to a more literal translation of verse 20. Our modern English translations will translate it uh, by saying that Jacob deceived Laban, or the ESV says that he tricked Laban as if Jacob were somehow at fault or in the wrong in what he did. I think the King James translation of verse 20 is probably more helpful in getting at what is going on here when it simply says, and Jacob stole away unawares uh, to Laban the Syrian in that he told him not that he fled. Jacob left secretly and left by stealth. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Considering Laban's disposition and what Laban does that we'll see subsequently in the chapter, uh, Laban probably would have done everything he could have, everything in his power to prevent Jacob from leaving. And it wouldn't have gone over well if Jacob and the rest of the fam had stopped in to say goodbye uh, to Laban on their way out. And what is more, Jacob had the explicit and direct command of God to depart for his homeland. And so they left. Now, in in all of this, do we not see how the Lord had watched over Jacob and cared for him? We see that, and we'll see more of that in what is to come. Now, let's, let's look at the rest of the chapter. We'll begin reading again in verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook them in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night, And said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me? so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away, because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live, and the presence of your kinsmen point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out to Leah's Uh, went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through, uh, excuse me, though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before me and my kinsmen, 
and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? To these my daughters, or to their children, whom, I, whom they have borne? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone, set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahudatha, but Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day, therefore it is named Galeed and Mizpah. For he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from the other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Now, here obviously we see that Laban pursued and overtook Jacob, and the Lord still kept Jacob safe. When Laban was pursuing and getting close to Jacob, the Lord appeared to him by night in this dream and warned him not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, Laban is supposed to leave this man alone. Don't speak good to him. Promise him wonderful things if he'll come back. Don't threaten him if he refuses to return. And to Laban's credit, despite his displeasure at what Jacob had done, and despite the fact that he gave vent to that displeasure, nevertheless, he didn't command Jacob to come back, nor did he threaten him with violence. But he did make it known that he was displeased with Jacob, verses 26 through 28. When he speaks there in uh, verses 26 and 27 of, of being deceived or of being tricked, he's using the same language that had appeared up in verse 20 with regard to uh, his heart having been stolen. And he's referring here to the fact, of course, that Jacob had fled away in secrecy, though he says there that he would like to have bid his daughters goodbye and, 
and said goodbye to his grandchildren in style with kind of throwing a a going-away bash for them, I think we can well question the sincerity of his intentions in that regard. He didn't seem to value his daughters and potentially his grandchildren too much when he had them at arm's length close by. And so what's the big deal now that they're moving away? Given his greediness, he would not have been the man to have spent too much on a party to bid them farewell? Probably not. He claims in verse 20, excuse me, verse 29, that it was in his power to harm Jacob. And maybe he was right. He did have a a posse of kinsmen there with him. We don't know how many. And so just from a a physical point of view, they may have been a formidable posse. But God had appeared to Laban, and the point had been clear. He's not to harm Jacob. And also he understands that Jacob longed for his father's household. And he seems to understand that there's a a certain longing that Jacob had to, to get back to his father's household. And he seems to get that. But he is upset as he says, why did you steal my gods? And as Jacob responds to Laban in verse 31, he gives the reason why he took off secretly. He says, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. He thought, you know, if I said goodbye, I might not get out of here with my family. And then he goes on to make a rash statement concerning these idols. He said, if these idols are found with anyone here, find them, we'll kill them, whoever it is. How little did he know that they were in the tent of his beloved Rachel. And so Laban begins there looking for the idol. He comes up empty-handed in Jacob's tent and in the tents of Leah and the maids, and finally comes there to Rachel's tent. And uh, she, of course, had stashed those idols in the camel's saddle and sat upon the saddle and said that she could not rise in reverence before her father because the manner of women was upon her. Now, maybe she was speaking the truth in that, but even if she was, she was using it as a way of concealing her theft. If indeed she sat upon them while the manner of women was upon her, it would seem that she didn't treat these idols with with too much reverence, and so uh, she may not have been a religious uh, devotee of these idols. But at the end of the day, whatever she may have thought of the idols, Tricky Laban also had a tricky daughter before him there in his tent, and she got the best of him. Now, when Laban comes out empty-handed with no proof of any stolen goods, Jacob really lets him have it there in verses 36 through 42. Laban could prove no wrongdoing. He could prove no theft. And Jacob lays out his grievances that he had served his uncle uh, so well these previous 20 years. He had taken great care of his uncle and his flocks. He'd been a model shepherd for him. The flocks had done well. He had not eaten the rams. If anything was stolen or torn by beasts, he bore the loss of that himself. By the heat of day, the cold of night, and through sleeplessness, through it all, he had served Laban. And then he concludes by pointing out the way in which God took care of him. Verse 42, he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands So he rendered judgment last night. And when he's referring to last night, he's referring back to this dream that Laban had had the night before. He says that if God wasn't for him, if God wasn't 
taking care of him, uh, showing up in that dream and judging in his favor, then Laban might have taken everything from him right there on the spot, right? Laban says, it's in my power to do you harm. And you notice what, what Laban says next, very possessive about his daughters, very possessive of his grandchildren, very possessive of the flocks which Jacob had earned by his labor. He says, all these are mine. The daughters are mine, the sons are mine, the flocks are mine. But, he says, what can I do this day to these my daughters or their children whom they have born? He recognizes that. Given what God has said, his, his hands are kind of tied. He can't do anything about it. And so seeing that nothing could be done to prevent Jacob uh, from going to Canaan and from Jacob taking all that was his along with him, he asks to make a covenant. And so they make a covenant. And the stipulations are that Jacob are not to mistreat Laban's daughters, not to take additional wives to them, that neither one are allowed to pass by this heap with intentions of harming the other. And notice there in verse 53 how Laban is said uh, to call upon the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father to judge between them. I think it's a bit of an open question just what Laban meant in saying that. Was Laban calling upon the one true and living God to judge between them? Or was Laban calling upon more than one God? The God of Abraham on the one hand and the God of Nahor, potentially a different God on the other hand. I think it's a bit of an open question because Laban on the one hand certainly knew the true God. The true God had showed up to him in a dream. He knew it was God. But it is also clear that his allegiance to the true God was either divided or perhaps even non-existent, right? He's, he's chasing after these household idols of his. It's also worthy of notice uh, what we find in Joshua 24, verse 2, where we're told that from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. We're reminded there that Abraham and his family had been idolaters back in the day. But the Lord had called Abraham out from beyond the river, and he had gone first to Haran with his father Terah and his brother Nahor before he proceeded on to the land of Canaan. Now, Terah died in Haran, and Nahor stayed behind in Haran when Abraham went on to Canaan. And so I think we can at least be hopeful that Terah and Nahor came to believe in and to embrace the one true God who had called Abraham. But it's also clear that in this branch of Nahor's family that had remained behind in Haran, there are some idolatrous tendencies there. And Laban would have been the grandson of Nahor. And we should also note that the verb that we find in verse 53 is in the plural. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, may they judge. It's almost as if the, uh, the verb is potentially intentionally in the plural, meaning more than one God. And so there's possibly some polytheism or some confusion going on there in what Laban was saying. But notice how in this context, Jacob takes his oath there in the covenant. He swears by the fear of his father Isaac. That is, he swore by the God whom his father Isaac feared. And thus, as one writer expressed it, he mentions the fear of Isaac rather than the God of Abraham to declare more plainly and undoubtedly by what God he was swearing 
For Abraham had been an idolater, but Isaac never was. And so whatever ambiguity could have been going on in the words of Laban or in the mind of Laban, Jacob was being very clear that he was taking his oath upon the one true and living God. And so the oath is made, the sacrifice is offered, they eat a meal that night on the mountain. The next morning, Laban kisses his daughters and his grandchildren goodbye. He turns around and goes back to Paddan Aram. And now, there's certainly a lot here in this chapter in terms of difficult family relationships, difficult relationship with one's employer, getting out of Dodge secretly when the circumstances seem to require it, making a covenant with a religiously confused family member, and so on. There are a lot of interesting details and several things raised which might be worthy of reflection when confronting various situations in life. But again, the main theme that shows up over and over in this chapter is the Lord's care for his own people. Let's just, let's just list it out and, and step again through these things. Under the altered circumstances that Jacob now faces, being out of favor with Laban and his sons, God commands him to go back to the land of his fathers. Promises, in verse 3, to be with him in that endeavor. And what he says to his wives, Jacob bears testimony by saying, the God of my father has been with me. Verse 5, God did not allow him to hurt me. Verse 7, he recounts the way that the Lord had, had spoken to him in the dream. God comes to Laban in a dream to protect him. And then in verse 42, Jacob proclaims to Laban that God had been for him and had prevented uh, Jacob from being sent away empty-handed, that God had rendered judgment for him again and again, over and over. Despite powerful and prejudiced opposition, the Lord was watching out for Jacob. And again, this was in accord with the promise at Bethel, Genesis 28. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land and will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The Lord promised his blessing, promised his presence, promised to bring Jacob back to that land. And that is precisely what he did against all opposition and against all odds. Jacob was the chosen of the Lord, the descendant of Abraham who had received the Abrahamic blessing. And the Lord was going to be faithful, faithful to do what needed to be done in order to protect and sustain this man, so that the plans and promises of God would be fulfilled. And there's something here for us in this. Namely and simply, that the Lord is faithful. That he will perform what he has promised, even when circumstances appear to be aligned against it. Even when the evil of man is set against it. All earthly and spiritual enemies notwithstanding, the Lord will accomplish what he has promised. And so we read in Romans 8, 29 and 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And this shows us how God's unchangeable purpose is to save a people for himself. This plan started in eternity past as 
God chose a people for himself, predestining those who would be his, and then this plan is worked out over time. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That is to say, he sent the gospel to them. He caused them to hear the good news. He opened their hearts to receive the truth of it. He sent his spirit so that they might repent and believe. He justified them, granting them the forgiveness of sins, crediting them with the righteousness of Christ. And all of that, of course, presupposes the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. As to his person, he is the second person of the Holy Trinity from all eternity. He is God the Son. And then in the fullness of time, he united his eternal and divine nature to a human nature, with a body and soul in which he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and therefore He is the true seed of Abraham, the true seed of David. It is in this way that the divine and the human natures are brought together into a unity of person in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, he is both true God and true man. And being who he is, both God and man, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And this is because of his work in living a sinless life and going to the cross to bear the punishment which we deserved for our sins so that the righteous judgment of God against us, which we deserve for our sins, would be satisfied. It is in this way, so Paul can speak in Romans 3, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that text in in Romans 8 goes on to say that those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is, those who are justified by the death of Jesus here on earth will be brought to eternal glory. And that is precisely the point of connection with our text in Genesis 31. And I I want you to see that, and I want to emphasize this to you this morning for your edification and for your encouragement. Now, in doing that, I'm operating on the assumption that a good percentage of you this morning are, in fact, justified. That is to say that you are saved, that you are genuine believers in Christ. Now, realize... I'm not speaking to everyone here in that, but I'm operating on that assumption that a large percentage of you are. Now, for those of you who are not, hear me here. If you're not saved, if you've not repented and believed, you need to stop right now. Take stock of your life. Confess your sins to the Lord. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You need to do this or you will be lost forever. And if you're in that position, keep listening to what I say in speaking to those who are believers because in what I'm going to say you will hear about what Christ has done for us so that we might be saved and what Christ does for those who are saved to bring them to glory that those whom he justified he also glorified so keep listening and repent and believe and if you have more questions about what it means to repent and believe, you can talk to me or you can talk to another believer whom you know after the service. We would love to tell you more about what it is to repent and believe in Jesus. And so speaking to those who are believers, we are, as it were, in an analogous position to Jacob. Analogous to Jacob. God has promised to be with us. He had promised to be with Jacob, so also he has promised to be with us. God had promised to bless Jacob. He has promised to bless us. God has promised to bring us into the promised land, promised to glorify us, to bring us safely to his 
eternal kingdom. We read those words of Paul this morning, 2 Timothy 4, where you know, that the, the Lord is going to, to bring him safely into his eternal kingdom. And that promise applies to all who belong to Christ. However, in the meantime, there are some obstacles along the way. Jacob had his, and you've got yours. I've got mine. But what I hope we've noticed here in Genesis 31 is that it was not Jacob's strength or skill or his cunning or his resolve or anything of the sort that brought him safely back to the land of Canaan, back to the promised land. Obviously, Jacob did make plans. Jacob did consult with his wife. Jacob did flee secretly at an opportune moment. Yes, he did. But it was not those activities that guaranteed his success. It was the mercy and protection of God. It was God acting upon the promise that he had given when he said, I will bring you back to this land. It was God acting upon the promise that he had given when he said in verse 3, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. God was the one who had preserved and prospered Jacob in adverse circumstances while Jacob was working for Laban and God was the one who kept Jacob safe when Laban said in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. It wasn't his power to do him harm. But it was God who was in Jacob's corner. It was God who was for Jacob. It was God who had rendered judgment on Jacob's behalf. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, it will be the same with us. Right? There are obstacles along the way to the promised land. Now, broadly speaking, we can classify those obstacles as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, obviously, the flesh is in, in us, right? It is, as it were, you yourself in opposition to yourself. Even as a Christian, saved, born again, renewed, you carry about within your heart the remnants of original sin. Or, as Paul calls it in Romans 7.17, sin which dwells in me. That indwelling sin within you and within me throws its resistance out at us as we journey on to the promised land. And so Paul speaks in Romans 7.19 and says, For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. And therefore we read in Galatians 5.16 and 17, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. We have opposition from the flesh. Likewise, the world is no help to us in our heavenly journey. The voices of the world seek to allure us and tempt us to sin, or else seek to discourage us and divert us and distract us, so that we keep our eyes fixed on the things of this world, this earth, for fulfillment. We turn to the love of money, or we pursue power or the approval of man. In addition to that, there are the voices of the world that say to us what the fool says in his heart. Voices of the world say there is no God. And then they are quick to draw the conclusion that if there is no God, you can all feel free to invent your own morality or to turn true and biblical morality on its head so that we call good evil and evil good. And when we are out in the echo chamber of the world and we hear what the voices of the world are saying, we can be led off track 
be led into the wasteland of, of lawlessness, be led into the wasteland of unbelief. Or, if we're not led completely off track, we can at least begin to question what we are doing in the service of Christ and maybe even why we are in the service of Christ to begin with. And then there is the devil. Behind the world that we see and experience are the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, the devil and his demons. So John speaks of him in 1 John 3.8 and says, The devil has sinned from the beginning, and he wants to lead us into sin as well. Satan seeks to point us away from God and away from heaven, and therefore he seeks to take advantage of our weakness. He seeks to exploit our flesh, to, to stir it up even more, so that it wars even more against the Spirit. If your flesh is prone to sensuality, he wants to provide you the ways and means and opportunities to indulge. The same goes for anger, hatred, gossip, pride, deceitfulness, theft, drunkenness, and so on. If you're prone to those things, Satan seeks to provide you the ways and means to accomplish those things. And, he, and so he brings temptation to our minds, and he often uses the world as his agent to accomplish that design. And then he will feed you the lie on top of that, that what you crave and desire is not actually all that bad, that it's really good for you, that you deserve it. Like the woman of folly in Proverbs 9.17, he says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But in the end, it leads to death. Not merely the death of the body, but the eternal death of the soul. And never-ending judgment. And so you see what I mean. Jacob had his obstacles on the way to the promised land. You and I have ours as well. And with enemies such as that, such as the world of flesh and the devil and all their broad array as we have just spoken, how can any one of us hope to make it to eternal life in heaven? Well, brothers and sisters, take heart. Because we'll get there the same way Jacob got there. By the blessing, the power, and the intervention of God himself. In 1764, the Welsh hymn writer William Williams wrote an epic poem under the title The Life and Death of Theomemphis from His Birth to His Grave. And I've not read it, but as I understand it, this is kind of, uh, kind of like a Welsh version of Pilgrim's Progress in a way, because Many of us are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. A man starts out in the city of destruction. He's on his journey to the celestial city. And along the way, he's got all kinds of enemies seeking to divert him, distract him, get him turned around, kill him, whatever. And it seems to be the, kind of the same thing here going on in, in William Williams's uh, Life and Death of, of Theomemphis. Uh, one writer described Theomemphis as a representative sinner who has sinned his way through every conceivable transgression and then a representative saint who by grace is delivered out of every considerable, uh, every conceivable temptation. And so the, the idea here is, is God taking one who is his own and bringing him safely to the promised land. And in this epic poem about uh, this sinner turned saint, William Williams described the preserving power of God toward his people in this way. He said, Divine election sleeps not, though Christians fall asleep. Its purposes of goodness, once sown, will always reap. It will safeguard God's people, though enemies surround. 
Restore the wandering spirit, the wanderings abound. And isn't this true? Isn't this the way it works? That left to ourselves, we would certainly fall and fall away and be lost forever. But it's God holding on to us. God bringing us safely, step by step along the way, just as he did here for Jacob. And therefore we read Peter's words in 1 Peter 1.23 when he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The seed with which we have been born again as Christians is an imperishable seed. It's the living and enduring word of God. We read the words of Jesus, uh, as our brother John read for us this morning, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Again, John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that those whom God saves, he preserves, carries, and brings through to the end. I think the canons of Dort expressed this doctrine of perseverance so helpfully when it says, uh, when they said, it is not in in consequence of their own merits or strength, but of God's free mercy, that they neither totally fall from faith and grace, nor continue and perish finally in their backslidings, with which uh, respect to themselves is not only possible, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, it is utterly impossible. Since his counsel cannot be changed, nor his promise fail, neither can the call according to his purpose be revoked, nor the merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ be rendered ineffectual, nor the sealing of the Spirit be frustrated or obliterated. And as it has pleased by the preaching of the gospel, to begin this work of grace in us so he preserves, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and the reading of his word, by meditation thereon, and by exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, and the use of the sacraments. And so, Christian friends, rest assured, the Lord will bring you from here safely to his eternal kingdom. Same way that he did for Paul, just as we see it exhibited here for us in Genesis 31 with Jacob's journey from Haran to the promised land. The Lord will work these things out for us and bring us safely, step by step. The Lord's work in bringing his people home to their eternal rest will not be frustrated. He uses ways and means to bring that to accomplishment. He uses his word. He uses the ordinances, like the Lord's Supper, to which we're coming this morning. And so let's make use of them. Let's not despise them. Let's not neglect his word. Let's listen and pay attention to the the exhortations, the encouragements, and also the threatenings of judgment promised by the law, and also the promises of salvation given to us in the gospel. Let's not neglect the, the Lord's table, this covenant meal in which Christ reminds us that his body was given for us, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. It was his blood of the covenant, his blood of the new covenant, and it is of the new covenant which the Lord is speaking in Jeremiah 32, 40, when he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Saints of God, fresh courage take. 
He'll put the fear of himself in us so that we don't turn away from us. He will not turn away from doing good to those who are his in Christ. Take fresh courage and let's throw off our sins. Let's run the race. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus because it is he who will bring us safely home at last. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize our weakness. And we know that if this journey were left in our hands, it would be a failure. That we would fall. That we would never be recovered. But Lord, it's not in our hands. The battle is yours. And Lord, we give thanks uh, to you for your great kindness, your great love that Uh, that you do not abandon your people along the way, but you have given to us gracious promises uh, which will be fulfilled, and we praise you for that. We give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.